You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this first episode of the fourth season of the Bible for Normal People. Did you miss us? I hope so. Are you talking to me? We missed you. (laughs) I didn't miss me at all. I'm tired of me, actually. I need a break. Well, today we are going to talk about the gift of imagination in reading Scripture, and we're talking with Father Jim Martin. Yeah, Jim Martin. He's... um A.K.A. James Martin. James, you may know him as James Martin. But he's he's pretty cool. So, anyway, but uh, Jim has, you know, a lot of you probably know really a lot about him. He's been all over the place, but he's written a bunch of books. And I, some of them I've read, he's written quite a few, but uh, The Jesuit Guide for Almost Everything, which was a really cool book. And then Between Heaven and Mirth, and it's about joy and humor and laughter as sort of foundational to the Christian life, which is not something you hear all the time, and, and his, it's, it's pretty uh, funny. His most recent book is Building a Bridge, um, How the Catholic Church and the LGBT Community Can Enter a Relationship of Respect, Compassion, and Sensitivity. So that yeah. just came out a few years and ago. And he's got another one coming out in a year or something right. like that, so we'll let him And he let us that. know that he met with the Pope yes. four months ago. Yes, so. and he said we should have him on as a guest. I could feel that. I could tell he did, because I could still feel... He had a little bit of that vibe. The glow. The Pope glow. The Pope glow, right. <laughs> he also said he doesn't know English very well, so that's not going to happen. Yeah. We can't have him here. Mm-hmm. So. But, Sorry. Yeah. So anyway, but he's also uh, an editor for the Jesuit magazine, the editor, right, for the Jesuit magazine America. And, you know, he is, you know, buddies with Stephen Colbert. Not that we're name dropping, but that's pretty cool. You know, he, he you know, just, he's, well, he's been he's he, been in that sort of stratosphere. Yeah, he's been able to bring, I think, a religious conversation to more public spaces, and I think that's a really important thing to do. As we, mm-hmm. you know, we had Jonathan Merritt on to talk about the importance of kind of these religious words that are falling out of favor, and we don't know what to do with. And he has a platform to do that. So, yeah, and his approach, you know, we'll let him speak for himself, but it, it was really. It's familiar to me now, but only because of things that I've had to pass through over the past 15, 20 years where there was a time in my life where I would have been sort of like pushing this off and saying, no, this isn't right. But he says it in such a winsome, dare I say, spiritually mature way. You know, and it just, it's just – I think it's so interesting just this this gift of imagination. It's not a problem to get over. It's actually a gift that we have for accessing scripture. And it was really a lot of fun to hear him tell Bible stories from that point of view. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's get into this conversation with uh, Jim Martin. But, you know, our imagination is the gift that God gives us. Even when Jesus is recounting a parable, he's asking people to kind of imagine themselves in a story. We have to remind ourselves that these were written by four different people or four different editors who put the, their stories together at four different times for four different communities. That doesn't mean they're, they're false. It just doesn't mean that, you know, you can take these things literally. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. 
So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. Well, welcome, Jim, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. We have a whole host of things we are so eager to talk to you about today. But let's start with just a little bit of your spiritual biography. We don't often get a chance to sit and talk with uh, someone who's part of the Jesuit order. So how does one come to that decision in their life? Well, it's a long and winding road to quote the Beatles, I guess. Um, I grew up in a Catholic family, but not super religious. Didn't go to Catholic schools, didn't go to a Catholic high school or Catholic college. Went to the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business, worked uh, for General Electric uh, for six years. This is back in the 80s. And then I started to feel dissatisfied and sort of wanted something more, something else. And I stumbled upon the writings of Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk. And that just really opened up my eyes to just a new way of living and... uh, Eventually, someone put me in touch with the Jesuits. They're a Catholic men's religious order. We take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Um, we live in community. We do all sorts of different kinds of work. We're, we're probably most known in the States for our colleges and universities and high schools, you know, Georgetown, Boston College, Fordham, Loyola, Chicago, on and on and on. And yeah, I, I, I left uh, the corporate world in 1988 and um, never looked back. So it's, uh, it's, been, a, it's been a great uh I hope it's continuing. It's it's been a great road. Right. Well, you mentioned the Jesuits. Tell us a little bit more about what Jesuits are about. Maybe maybe eventually focusing on how they approach the Bible. And this is this is a lot to ask. But also maybe comparing briefly with other orders because you know Catholicism is something that maybe some of our listeners just aren't that familiar with. Yeah, it's kind of complicated. I mean, within the Catholic Church, there are what are called religious orders or religious communities. And most people know them by name. They know the Jesuits or the Dominicans or the Benedictines or the Franciscans. And it's basically groups of people who live together. Again, they profess those vows, poverty, chastity, and obedience. They're still Catholic, obviously. There's priests and brothers and sisters. And they usually have a distinctive what we call charism or spirit. So for the Franciscans, what are they known for? They're known for their love of poverty, right? Um, uh, Dominicans are known for preaching and teaching. And, you know, not every Dominican preaches and teaches, but that's kind of their their foundation. Uh, the Jesuits were founded in, oh my gosh, it just slipped my mind. How terrible. <laughs> uh, the Jesuits were founded in 1540 um, by Ignatius, who was born in 1491. That's where I got confused. Uh, he was a uh, Spanish former knight, and he had a conversion experience. And his idea was, um, you know, basically to draw people together to help, as he said, help souls. So it was a very general, open kind of spirituality. You know, we're all over the world now. I think there's, gosh, 15,000 of us at this point. And we do all sorts of things. Our spirituality can be summed up, I think, in the words, finding God in all things. And so you can have Jesuit professors, Jesuit uh, priests. A friend of mine is the Catholic chaplain at uh, San Quentin Prison in California. Uh, there are Jesuit writers. Uh, I, I work with refugees in East Africa for a while. So, you know, we're all over the place. And as the saying goes, if you've met one Jesuit, 
you've met one Jesuit. <laughs> so, so to take that a, a step further, in particular, like within the Jesuit order, how would the Bible have been esteemed? How would it have been approached? Are there ways of uh, reading it and interpreting it that would be maybe universally Catholic in some senses, but maybe unique to the Jesuit order and others? Yeah, well, it's imp- that's a great question. It's important to say that, you know, the, the Jesuit way of looking at the Bible is the Catholic way of looking at the Bible. And it's, it's hard to sum up, but there's a great document, which I doubt people are going to go and read now. It's called Dei Verbum from the Second Vatican Council um, in the 1960s. You know, and basically, it's, it's, we're not fundamentalists, we're not literalists, and so we read it with a, an intelligent eye, but, you know, we see it as the inspired Word of God, you know, as all Catholics do. But again, we're not, we're not literalists, we're not fundamentalists, and in fact, you know, I don't think you can be, because, I mean, there are so many differences in, for example, in the Gospels, you know, just in terms of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. It's the inspired Word of God, you know, it's the way that God, one of the primary ways that God communicates with us. There's no real Jesuit way of interpreting the Bible. I think the distinctive Jesuit contribution is praying with the Bible, uh, praying with Scripture, uh, praying with the Gospel passages. That's what Jesuits are most known for. I mean, there are a lot of Jesuit biblical scholars. I mean, some great, you know, Joseph Fitzmaier and um, Cardinal Martini and Daniel Harrington. I mean, there's there's tons of New Testament and Old Testament scholars, but we're known less for that um, in general and more for our way of inviting people to pray with Scripture. Yeah, and you mentioned Dei Verbum. That's, um, what, explain what that is. That's so yeah, cool. so in the 1960s, there was something called the, the Second Vatican Council, also called Vatican II. And it was a gathering of, uh, boy, uh, cardinals, archbishops, and bishops from, you know, all, all around the world, pretty much the entire church, convened by Pope John XXIII, who was Pope, uh, was elected in 1958. We're talking about the early 60s now. And basically what he wanted to do was, you know, in his words, sort of update um, or open the windows a little bit to what had become kind of a stuffy way of looking at things. And one of the things we looked at, um, the church looked at, among other things, you know, for example, our relationship to other religions and religious liberty, um, the church itself, uh, was scripture. And they wrote a beautiful document called Dei Verbum, you know, the Word of God, inviting Catholics to sort of rediscover the treasures of Scripture. I mean, I think, as you know, you know, Protestants were much more associated with understanding the Bible. I'll tell you, may I tell you a funny story quickly? Yeah. My New Testament professor, who I've already mentioned, Father Daniel Harrington, just this tremendous um, Scripture, New Testament professor and uh, you know, just just amazing and very influential in the Jesuits and a prolific writer. He told the story of growing up as a um, a boy as in an Irish Catholic family in Boston, and a Bible salesman came to the door. Right, so Dan is about seven years old, and his Irish Catholic mother opens the door and says, "You know, we're selling Bibles." And the mother says, "Quote." We're Catholic. We don't read the Bible and shut the door in his face. <laughs> yeah, this is this is Dan Harrington's mother. So that's basically the the attitude that Dave Verbum was um, sort of battling. There were a lot of uh, documents before that, but it was a real invitation for Catholics to you know rediscover the Bible, right? As as part of their heritage, and uh, which sounds like a funny thing to say now, but. You know, there's still a a sort of lag, I think, among Catholics in terms of their understanding of the Bible. So, in that document, and I want to maybe kind of dig into some some specifics. So, 
In the De Verbum, there's this language, which I think actually to tie us Protestants and Catholics together, John Calvin maybe mentioned something similar in his Institutes about God lisping to his children in the Bible. And there's a section where it talks about, you know, while the truth and holiness of God always remains intact, the marvelous condescension of eternal wisdom is clearly shown. And then it talks about that God has uh, adapted his language with thoughtful concern for our weak human nature. And so I'm just curious, when it comes to like modern day issues, you know, you talk about the Bible as God's word, but not literal. And I think for a lot of our listeners and for me growing up, that would have been kind of a contradiction. Like, okay, how can it be God's word if it's not, if we don't read it in this way? Because I was kind of taught those go together. So when it comes to today, as we think about the Bible as, as an ethical guide or a moral guide, I mean, maybe that's not even the right category to put the Bible in. But how do you see this idea that we, we find here in, in the De Verbum about um, God sort of being kind enough to accommodate or adapt himself to our to our weakness. How does that work in, you know, how do you, basically how do you use the Bible today as you're thinking about the issues that we face? Well, those are all good questions. And what I meant by, um, you know, not taking it literally is not that it's not true or not that it doesn't. Let's, let's focus on the Gospels, for example. You know, the Gospels tell the story of the, you know, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right, who is the center of my life. But they differ on, on, you know, specifics, as we know, right? I mean, there are attempts to harmonize the Gospels, but, you know, for example, the, uh, the infancy narratives, which we're thinking about around Christmas time, right, in, in Matthew and Luke, they don't match up totally. They, they just don't, right? They're, they're told in, in slightly different ways. They diverge uh, a little bit. Um, and then in Mark and in John, there are no infancy narratives. Now, what does that mean? You know, it simply means that we have to be we have to remind ourselves that these were written by you know four different people or four different editors who put the, their stories together at four different times for four different communities that doesn't mean they're they're false it just doesn't mean that you know you can take these things literally you know there there's simply put discrepancies in among the gospels right what did jesus mm-hmm. say in the sermon on the mount did he say blessed are the poor or blessed are the poor in spirit right so so that's the point you you have to sort of look at these things with a with a sort of an intelligent eye. And, you know, he's, he's quoted differently in different gospels. He says different things from the cross. And so, yeah, so it's, it's not dismissing it, but it's also looking carefully at what biblical scholars tell us about, for example, how these books were put together. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my favorite examples, that's a very small example is, um, you know, when Jesus heals the man in Capernaum, who's lowered through the roof, right? You remember that story? Yeah. Uh, In Mark, it said they unroofed the roof, right? It's a very, Mark's the earliest gospel. In Luke, they said they took off the roof tiles. Okay, now, which is it? You, you can't read that literally. I mean, they either ripped off the, the thatch roof or they took off the roof tiles. Well, if you know a little bit about Luke being written later and him writing for a little bit more of a citified audience, right, a little bit more of a sophisticated audience, he put that in. He put that detail in. That doesn't mean the story never happened, but it doesn't. it, it, it does mean that, you know, there are discrepancies that we have to look at. So that's what I mean about not taking it literally and not being mm-hmm. upset when you see that, that uh, you know, Mar- I think it's Mark and Luke, you know, do that a little differently. That's the point. You don't okay. need to get upset. You can still see it as a true story. And, and, and more importantly, you know, a story that conveys a much deeper meaning than what the roof looked like. Right. Well, l- let me fold something in here uh, talking about the uh, De Verbum. And now we're looking at the birth narratives and how they differ, uh, to fold into that historical criticism a bit, and maybe what 
uh, the Dave Irvin has said about historical criticism, but specifically, you know, with the birth narratives, because, you know, they are quite different. And, you know, have the slaughter of the innocents, but only in one, right? And, and, and you have the flight, you know, uh, to and from Egypt in one, not the other. And you have the angels appearing in one, not the other. And, and that raises the question, as you know, well, what happened? Or, or did both of these ha- – do we mesh them together? Or is there room in, let's say, a Jesuit or Catholic spirituality of Scripture, if we can put it that way, to say, well, listen, some of these things may be constructed by the authors of these Gospels and maybe need not be historical. And I ask that because, you know, like Jared said before, a lot of uh, Protestants coming from more conservative backgrounds, that's something that they face all the time and they feel they need to maybe take a step away from the way they were raised to to think about this text. So, yeah, what's your opinion on all that that I just said? Yeah, that's a very <laughs> profound question. And I, I don't want to say something like, well, it's all a myth or it doesn't really matter. What matters is that we believe in something. No, I mean, I believe that those stories tell the truth about how Jesus was born. But however, they differ because they are, they're four different people telling the stories and they stress certain things and others don't stress certain things. And in fact, as you know, uh, you know, John doesn't have those infancy narratives, you know, or Mark at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I often say to people, look, if I were telling the story about this podcast, okay, and I told my experience of this story, let's say someone else told the experience of the story of the podcast starting up. Another person had an experience of listening to the podcast. And then another, maybe your, your parents or something wrote a book about, you know, how the podcast affected them. They are going to stress things and leave things out um, and highlight things and maybe even embellish things that another person won't, right? That doesn't mean that their stories are wrong. It, it just means that they're telling it from a different point of view, right? Now, I do think that there are probably some elements of the infancy narratives that were probably added on, right? I mean, it's very hard to tell which ones, right? I mean, did the wise men actually bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh, mm-hmm. or are those symbolic? That's very hard to know. You know, if I get up to heaven, I've always said this, if I get up to heaven and Jesus said to me, you know what? It happened exactly like it was in the Gospels, where there was gold, frankincense, and myrrh, I'll say, fine. If Jesus says, you know what? There were wise men. It wasn't quite like that. The gold, frankincense, and myrrh were added later by the gospel writers. I'll say, fine. Right? I mean, frankly, if Jesus says anything to me, I'll say, fine. (laughs) But that's the point. It's, I mean, not to get so bogged down in the specifics, right? But to take the story as a whole, right? Um, You know, I mean, I, I believe the story happened more or less as it was written, right, in the infancy narratives. But again, if one or those elements, you know, falls out um, and it was, it's found out to be a later edition, right, it, it doesn't destroy my faith in, you know, in the birth of Jesus. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community 
long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Well, and, and maybe to, to go off of that a little bit with something you said earlier, you talked about the deeper meaning. Like, So maybe don't worry so much about that particular question of what exactly happened because there's not necessarily a lot of practical import based on that, but looking for that deeper meaning, I wanted to tie that in with maybe going back to what you said about praying with the Bible and the, a particular Jesuit distinctive. So what can you say more about what that what does that mean and what are the kind of practical implications of that practice? Yeah, but let me respond a little bit to what you just said because I think it's an important point. Um, I, I do think that there's a, a danger. I know you're not saying this. There's a danger in saying, well, the deeper meaning is that just, you know, Jesus was born, which, you know, that's an important meaning, obviously. That's the incarnation mm-hmm. is very important. I mean, I do think that that those stories deserve real attention. And the story, you know, for example, of Jesus being born to a poor family on the run, you know, in occupied territory, who, you know, then have to take their child to Egypt, you know, as essentially a refugee. That, that is, the specifics of the story are important as well. So, you know, the, the reader, at least in the Catholic tradition, should come to the Gospels and come to the Bible itself, you know, with a sense of wanting to meet God there, with a sense of kind of intelligence, uh, but also, I think, with a sense of trust and a sense of um, generosity, as a, one of my teachers used to say, you know, to, to the Gospels and to the story, so... But anyway, I'm sorry. I, well, can you repeat that second question you had? Yeah, it was just, you know, when you'd mentioned praying with the Bible, if you could just say a little bit more, because I, I agree, I think the details, you know, I, just with our background with seminary and graduate school and, and Pete and his professorship, I think we we are emphasizing a lot that these things matter. The discrepancies matter, the details matter, it all, it, it all matters. But there's also this sense where we also want to say there's this other element of spiritual practice 
And and so when you talk about praying with the Bible, what 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 do you mean by that, and what's the practical implications of it? Sure, uh, it's a very I would say specific practice that that the Jesuits are known for. We're not the ones that invented it. We 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 like to take credit for it, but we had not we did not invent it. I would say that it was popularized by uh, Saint Ignatius, who's the founder of the Jesuits. It's essentially you can call it Ignatian contemplation or composition of place or imaginative prayer. And it's essentially imagining yourself in the gospel scene in your prayer. Now, that sounds sort of simple and and almost elementary, but it can be very profound. So, for example, let's take the infancy narrative, since we're talking about that. If you take, for example, um, you know, the story of Jesus's birth in the gospel of Luke. So, let's start with the Annunciation, right? You would imagine yourself in that scene. You would close your eyes and say, all right, what do I see? Okay, now what, what does Mary look like in this scene? Where is she? What kind of a house is she in? When the angel appears, what does the angel look like in your imagination? Is it a traditional angel with wings? Is it a kind of beam of light? As you say, what is it? What do you hear? You know, what does your voice sound like? What does the angel sound like? What do you, what do you smell, right? In some passages, that's not going to be very important. But, you know, for example, if you're at the Wedding feast of Cana, you're going to smell a lot of food and wine and all that. What do you taste? You know, what do you what do you feel? Meaning, like, what are you wearing? If you're in a a miracle story, uh, if you're in the story of the man being healed in Capernaum, being lowered down the roof, you know, boy, what do you imagine? Just all the sights and the sounds and the the visual, and then you place yourself in the scene and you pray with it and you see what happens. And let me tell you, it can be extremely powerful for people because it's. It's experiencing through your imagination, which is a gift from God, right? It's a gift through your imagination, this kind of entry into the, into the gospel passage or more broadly into the Bible. And it is a favorite way for Jesuits to pray and to encourage others to pray. It can be really, I like to say this, and this is not meant as any sort of critique. It can be really eye-opening for a lot of Protestants who have not been invited into this way of praying. Sounds like a critique to me, and that's fine. <laughs> oh, no, it's not meant to be. Um, you know, because I think, you know, just as you, you might say, the Catholics have not, many Catholics have not had the experience of, you know, being invited to learn the Bible, even read, read the Bible. Um, I have found that in my experience, sometimes Protestants have not been invited to pray in this particular way uh, with, the, with, the, with the scriptures. Hey everyone, I'm Casey Hatcher from Abilene, Texas, and I'm part of the producers group here at The Bible for Normal People. Now, in case you didn't know, this podcast is brought to you by the Patreon platform, which means that for as little as $1 a month, you can be a part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. Let's be honest, that's literally cheaper than a cup of coffee. Now, I personally decided to become a supporter when I realized just how much Pete, Jared, and their guests had really contributed to my spiritual journey. If you would all feel the same way, please consider supporting Pete and Jared at patreon.com backslash the Bible for normal people. Now, if you cannot support this podcast financially, hey, we totally understand. Please go to iTunes and rate and review it, which will help others be able to find us. One group we want to thank in particular is our producers group, who truly help improve the podcast and make it what it is today. So a huge thank you to Wayne Bartle, John Bonnet, Katie Komen, Roseanne Hennessy, Scott Skiles, Jeremy Jones, Dave Carlton, and Jonathan Beck. The Bible for Normal People definitely couldn't happen without you. Now, back to the podcast. So it's really profound. And, um, you know, some pretty amazing things can happen in terms of 
insights, emotions, desires, memories, feelings. I'm writing a book about this right now, which is why it's on the tip of my tongue. Hmm. Um, so for, uh, can I give you an example? Yes, please. Sure. Well, let's say you're praying with the storm at sea, one of the many storms at sea. And you, you imagine yourself in the scripture reading and you're one of the disciples. And as we know, you know, it's dark outside and there's a storm and the disciples are afraid and they say to Jesus, you know, why are you asleep? Don't you care about us? And he stands up and rebukes, I love that word, rebukes the storm and uh, there's a dead calm. And they say, who is this then that even the wind and the waves obey him? So very well-known story. Now, you know, it's one thing to read it and to say, okay, that's Jesus's power over nature. That's a nature miracle. It's another thing to hear a, a sermon or a homily about it where someone tells you, this, this is what this means, or this is an interpretation. It's another thing to put yourself in there and see what happens. And oftentimes, for example, let's say you're praying and you, you start to feel, well, what is wrong with Jesus? Why isn't he helping the disciples, right? And, and, and I feel Jesus is asleep in my life. And you start to feel a little sadness or disappointment over something that's happening in your life where Jesus feels asleep, Right. And you might be moved in that prayer to talk to Jesus about it. What's he going to say to you in your prayer? So it can be really powerful for people. That, that's, a, that's a very popular uh, passage on, on retreats for people. It can be very powerful for people to talk to Jesus and say, you know, don't you care about us? Don't you care about me? And then also to listen to Jesus, if, you, if you're able to do this in your prayer, what's Jesus' response to you? You know, so 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 it kind of makes the story your own, uh, in a way that simply reading it or um, you know having someone preach about it or even reading about it does not, and it doesn't happen all the time, but it can be really transformative. I mean, I've had experiences in prayer that have kind of changed my life in in that particular way of praying. So so that's the that's Ignatian contemplation. That's 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 our Jesuit way of praying. And I think that's our great gift to the world. It's not, you know, all these universities with great basketball teams. It's this. <laughs> well, it's, it's a very interesting way of approaching what would have often, at least, you know, in my background, been this importance on the relevancy of the Bible to our life. So we're always trying to kind of apply the Bible to our life. And when there's kind of sermon style or reading it on our own, we tend to kind of piecemeal it. And we have as the backdrop and the framework our life, and then we're just taking pieces of the Bible or pieces of these stories to fit. And this kind of turns that on its head, where it's this immersive and a holistic experience of placing ourselves in that world and exploring it. So it's it's sort of we're it's still relevant. We're still it's more that we're applying ourselves to the Bible rather than the Bible applying to our life. And I really appreciate that. That's right, and it's also allowing the Holy Spirit to work within you. And to let God guide you. And it's, uh, you know, for some people, it can be very um, frightening, right? Because they're, they're, it, they're sort of untethered to, uh, you know, someone on the outside telling them what, what should happen, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is what you should feel. I mean, I'll tell you an interesting story. I, um, I was on the radio show of Cardinal Dolan, who's the Archbishop of New York here a couple of years ago. And we were talking about this topic, and he had gone on a retreat with some Jesuits, and they invited him, funny enough, to, to pray about um, the nativity scene. And, you know, he imagined himself in the stable. It's a very common prayer practice, and it's a very common passage to use. And in his prayer, he imagined Mary 
giving him the baby, hold, asking him to hold the baby, you know, the Christ child. And it was just a surprise to him because he was expecting to simply look at what was happening, right? And But in a lot of these imaginative prayers, what happens is you're sort of drawn into it. And he basically held Jesus, you know, for the, the prayer. And I said to him, I sort of, sort of, you know, chanced some spiritual direction. I said to him, well, and I bet the next time that you read the, the infancy narrative, it wasn't the same. He said, no, absolutely not. It was totally different for me. Because now it was his story, right? It was, mm-hmm. it was his experience of the story. And it's, it's, I can't describe it. It's just different. It's the difference between, it's the difference between someone telling you what it's like to swim in the ocean and reading a book about it and watching a video about it and jumping in the ocean. That's the difference. Yeah. You know, I mean, what you're saying, some pieces are coming together for me here in the question that I'm trying to articulate, but uh, just to contrast this with, again, the way I was trained, the way Jared was trained, the way I think many Protestants have been taught, I, I think what either evangelical or maybe mainline, I don't know if it makes much of a difference, but, you know, the basis for scriptural reading is what some call the grammatical historical method. You read the words and you understand the history sort of in a detached sense, and on the basis of that, you understand the text, and then you understand God, and you sort of it, – it, what you're suggesting, there's more of a spiritual immediacy in reading of Scripture because in a way – and I mean this in a very positive way – you're bypassing the critical mind. You're, you're maybe putting the left brain on pause for a minute and intuitively and emotionally engaging the text. Absolutely. I mean, what you're talking about, which is part of, you know, our spiritual lives is mainly insight, which is very important. And so you could get it, even in this practice in Ignatian contemplation, you could get an insight. So one of the common insights uh, about, um, say, the storm at sea is, I'm not surprised that the disciples were afraid. You know, if you you see Jesus in your mind's eye, uh, stilling the storm, you, you say, oh my gosh, that must have been really frightening. And you get an insight. Wow, I never thought of the disciples really being afraid of this guy that they were following as well as loving him. So that that's great. But by the same token, to your point, you can you can experience other things. So for example, deep emotion, right? You can experience sadness that Jesus isn't you know more active in your life or seemingly. You can experience anger. You can experience a desire to say in the in the infancy narrative to kind of care for people who are in childbirth um you can have memories that come up right um you can even have words and images that come up so it is it's much more immersive and it is not you know i would say you do bring a critical eye to it as much as you know but you don't have to be a bible scholar to do this right i mean you, you can take it at at face value right you know for example sometimes um People will do a, a meditation like this, and it will be in current day. So I had a I had a friend do a meditation on retreat, and when he did the storm at sea, he was in a, a boat that his dad had, <laughs> you know, like a, with an outboard motor, and he said that's just what came to me, and that was fine. You know, that's okay. You know, I mean, obviously Jesus and the disciples didn't have outboard motors, um, but. It's okay. It's, it's sort of letting God work through your imagination. I want to say one more quick thing. One of the critiques is, well, it's all in my head, right? Well, that, that's baloney. It's all in my head. But, you know, our imagination is a gift that God gives us. 
And, you know, even when Jesus is recounting a parable, he's asking people to kind of imagine themselves in a story. You know, a man went down to, took the Jericho road and was beaten. I mean, you know, he's asking, I want you to immerse yourself in this story. So it's all, I think, um, it's all of a piece. And it's a beautiful way of experiencing God. Yeah, and and that has been very important to me the past, I don't know, decade or so. And, you know, and people like Walter Brueggemann or Richard Rohr or others where the imagination is not your enemy, which is how – I mean, that's why I'm really attracted to that word. And I know Jared is too because we know how – people in our background would react to this. Well, it's, the whole point of biblical study was to bracket that out. Right, to get your imagination out of the way and just get to the facts and what really happened and and not this more, again, immediate access to, like you said before, the Holy Spirit. But, you know, people say, well, this is just – it's not just in, it's in your head, but it's just subjective. And what you need is objectivity if you want to really access, access Scripture. Yeah, it's a both and. Okay. I mean, to both ends. You can't, you can't, I mean, to be blunt, you know, you, you can't be kind of an idiot when you come to Scripture. Oh, you'd be surprised, Jim. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, you have to understand, you know, I mean, something simple, that there are four Gospels, they were written by four different people, something, you know, as basic as that. Um, they weren't, there weren't reporters there, right? They don't, you know, those kinds of sort of basic things. But by the same token, you don't have to be, you know, a biblical scholar and know Greek and Hebrew to kind of pray with this stuff. I think, I'm glad you like the imagination. You know, one of the things that I, I like to remind people is that Jesus asked people to do this. I mean, when he says a sower went out to sow in the parables, he's, he's saying, imagine a sower going out to sow. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Or imagine a man who had two sons. Right. I mean, he's, as we understand, he's 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 creating these stories. He's not reporting them. And that's what he's doing. He's kind of an, and and it's it's truly it's what we do whenever we do uh, whenever we read scripture. I mean, it's impossible to hear the, you know, the, the passion proclaimed or, or read the passion and not imagine it. It's it's happening already. And so this is just deepening. Yeah, it's not just for parables. It's for anything that we access, New or Old Testament, really. Absolutely. Yeah. But I guess what I'm saying is, even when you hear it, uh, a sermon on the passion narrative, you're imagining it. You're imagining in your mind's eye already what Jesus looked like on the cross. Mm-hmm. Well, and even, even to, to take that even further, I think one of the the things that we could exercise more of in our spiritual lives is something like, because when you said Jesus invites this as well, a lot of those parables are also inviting something like empathy. And I would say empathy by definition requires imagination. And so building those muscles outside of just our brain power to get to the facts, to being more holistic about what it means to be human, which we are emotional beings as well, I think is just a real, it's a, it's a healthier way, I think, of looking at scripture. Yeah, it's, like I said, it's, it's, it's the both end. I mean, it's, it's scripture study, it's listening to sermons, it's being attentive to scripture scholars, and it's encountering it, you know, on your own. Exactly. Because, you know, again, the Holy Spirit's working through you, and, you know, might as well pay attention to what the Holy Spirit's saying to you. And, and I would say, too, it's a dialectic in the sense that I feel like, for me, the older I get, it's a lifelong journey of letting those both inform each other. That, as I learn from biblical scholarship, that impacts how I read it, maybe from a more spiritual perspective— um, or a more imaginative perspective, and yet my imagination is always pushing on that scholarly side as well, and I think that's an important tension that we don't want to lose. Yeah, and frankly, I love 
reading, I know this sounds crazy, but maybe not to you guys. I love reading scripture commentaries and, you know, so the Sacropagina series and, you know, John Myers, Marginal Jew and, you know, all those things. I love it. And, and it, it helps you understand, I hate to say it, but the mise-en-scene and, you know, Jesus's experience and what it was like in, you know, first century Galilee and Judea, which just helps your prayer more, right? I mean, I've been to the Holy Land now five or six times and it just helps. I mean, to understand, you know, what Capernaum looked like and, you know, what Bethsaida looked like and where they were. And these are real places. And so, it's it's ironic. I mean, the more you know factually, I think the more it helps you imaginatively. Yeah, and that, that sort of gets to another question that's, to, to, in my mind, again, I'm thinking of the backgrounds we've had and what a lot of our listeners have had, that it's hard to get to that place to allow for an imaginative engagement of Scripture when you've been told for your whole life that this is – you're a worm and there's nothing good in you. And your imagination will simply lead you astray. But I, what I'm hearing you say, Jim, is that this is really just a part of being human, and you can't you can't escape it. Yes, I mean one Jesuit way. Of, I mean the Catholic way of looking at things is a little different. It's a both end. Saint Ignatius says, which I love, we are loved sinners, right? I mean we're loved by God and redeemed by God, and we're also sinful. I mean we're all all three of us are sinful people, but. You know, that doesn't mean that we, you know, can't use our imaginations. I mean, we're also, we're, we're I mean, you know, St. Paul says that we're temples of the Holy Spirit, right? And so the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit dwells within us. You know, one of the great uh, lines in the Second Vatican Council is, you know, in our conscience and our spirit, it's, you know, it's, it's where one hears the echoes of God's voice. Yeah. You know, and the other thing is, it, it, it's God in charge. It's not us in charge. It's not me making something up anyway. It's, it's being led to the Gospels uh, and, you know, to the Bible and more broadly by God who wants to show us something. And frankly, sometimes he shows us something about our sinfulness. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're praying about the infancy narratives and you see Mary and Joseph and you realize, oh my gosh, they're refugees, how am I treating refugees? You know, so it's not, all, it's not always comforting. It can be very challenging. Well, you're hitting on something now too, Jim, that I think that, that's meant a lot to me and I think to others that I know as well, sort of transitioning to different ways of thinking. This really isn't ultimately about what you think of the Bible and how it should be read. I think it really, at the end of the day, comes down to what you think God is like and whether God is on your side leading you somewhere or whether – and this is a bit of a caricature, but I'll stand by it – whether God is more sort of off in a distance looking down as sort of a judge waiting to see if you're going to get the Bible right or not. that That's a common malady that, I mean, I see that in students that I teach at the undergraduate level when I taught seminary. And this is all wrapped up. You can't, you really can't talk about, let's say, an imaginative reading of the Bible without a God behind it who values the human experience. And that's a, that's a foreign language for a lot of people. Well, that's that's interesting because I would say that's kind of surprising that God would not value the human experience since God became. <laughs> you think? <laughs> you think? That's just one time, though. That's one time, Jim. That's all that is. That's well, but with. you know, I mean, he's still, you know, Christ is risen, right? I mean, so he's in a way, you know, he's still human. He's still experiencing that humanity. No, that is true. I I do think that it it does depend on an experience of God uh, in one's own life that is, that is gracious and that is loving. And, you know, for people that find that difficult, 
um, what we normally do in the Jesuits is to try to get them in touch with that. Hmm. So often in the beginning of a retreat, we just say, take a few days just to pray about the way that God has blessed you. In fact, the beginning of the spiritual exercises is just that. It's, it's looking at your blessings, and then you're overwhelmed by, you know, how much God loves you. And, and gradually, which I think is really beautiful organically, you start to see your own shadow side. As a, as a Jesuit friend of mine likes to say, I love this expression, in the sunshine of God's love, we see our shadows. Hmm. And so what happens? What happens is, in, in my experience, is that people end up seeing themselves as what we said again, loved sinners. So it's both and. God loves you. You're, you know, you're imperfect, but God loves you. God's blessed you in all these things. And so that sort of sets the stage for this ability to, to relate to God and to trust in God. I mean, I, I, you know, I always go back to, if we're going to talk about, you know, quoting scripture, I always go back to Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare and for peace. And, you know, God's on your side. Also, look, how can we doubt that God's on humanity's side? I mean, Jesus comes down, he, he, he aligns himself with us, he dies for us on the cross. I mean, what, what more does God have to do to prove that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like, again, it's another, it's another one of those dialectics where we can't lose either side, that, that we are loved and that we are imperfect. And I think it's more that we tend to have a hard time feeling capable of being loved or belonging when we're imperfect. But that's, I think, part of what the gospel is saying, you know, kind of why we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. It's, it's while we are imperfect, we can still be lovable. And I think that's a powerful thing. Yeah, and one of the problems is that most people, I'm, as I said, I'm writing a book about this. You know, most people tend to think of God as they think of, for example, their parents or some authority figure, you know, who may or may not have loved them unconditionally, right? And so it, we, if we have parents who are very judgmental or church leaders that are very judgmental, we tend to see that as God. But, you know, as Christ shows us over and over again in the Gospels, you know, that's not, that's not who God is, right? It's just that that's... I always say to people, you know, let's say your name is, you know, Joe. I always say that's Joe's God, right? That, that's your God that you've constructed, right? That is not the God that we find in Jesus, right? I mean, he was always forgiving, always loving. And so it, part of it is getting people in touch with God, not, not, their, not their conception of God, which are two different things. And sometimes I say to people, that's like an idol. You know, you've, you've, we, everyone says, oh, I don't, you know, the first commandment, oh, who would believe in idols? That's crazy. But if you've created this kind of false god based on just your experience, you've kind of created an idol. Good. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap up our conversations. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time, but I like the idea of ending on the the notion that God is loving, and we see that in Jesus. What are other things, maybe projects? You've mentioned a few times this book you're working on. Is it coming out anytime soon? Can you give us more info on it or point us in a direction to kind of learn more about you or your work? Yeah, no time soon. It's called Learning to Pray, probably in another year. But if you want to learn more about me, uh, Father James Martin, I have, uh, I'm on Facebook under Father James Martin on Twitter, under James Martin SJ on Instagram. Um, probably the book that most listeners would. I hope, appreciate the most, is a book called Jesus, A Pilgrimage, which is a look at the life of Christ, um, as well as a visit to the Holy Land and some scripture scholarship as well. I I, I hope that uh, listeners would enjoy that. All right, Jim. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. We had a great time. Thanks for spending time with us. Me too. Great questions, too. All right. Thanks so much. See you soon. See ya. God bless. 
Hey, normal people, thanks for listening, and uh, welcome back to the podcast. We're happy to be here, too. Yeah, absolutely. And if you haven't already checked out uh, Patreon, uh, we would appreciate your support. But also, we had some special things that we put up there during the break for those of uh, our Patreon supporters who couldn't get enough of us. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> and that's probably the probably so not our wives and our families, right? <laughs> that's right. So if you want to check that out, you can go to patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. And uh, it's great to be able to say we'll see you next week. money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.